Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect. Communicate. Create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit. Now for those of you who were complaining about the sound, the sound in the background is the, the noise of business being done in the Greater Manchester Chamber of Commerce Members Lounge. However, the next noise that, that you'll hear will be Christian Spence. Hello Christian. Hello. And also, hello Alex Davis. Hiya Jonathan. Right. Okay, so since we spoke last we've had a round of talks. We've had a... Well, we've had the start of the debate of the... Give me the official name of the bill. The European Union Parentheses Withdrawal Bill. That's the one. <laughs> so, we will go with the Parentheses Bill. Yes. Um, why don't we just um, unpack this a bit? Why, Firstly, why is it important? And then give me an idea of the scope and scale of, uh, of the thing. Why is it important? So this is one of, I can't remember now, is it nine, ten bills we're expecting around uh, the whole Brexit process? Mm-hmm. This is the big one, because what this seeks to do is essentially twofold. One is it's going to repeal the 1972 European Communities Act, which is a bit of primary UK legislation which uh, took us into the uh, European community uh, back in 1972 uh, 73 And it's crucially the bill which gives primacy to European Union law over UK law. So essentially it's the mechanism by which those aspects of the European Union are key which which automatically apply to the UK even though Parliament doesn't pass anything here. So it's the route by which EU law flows. So obviously if we're leaving we need to stop new law flowing in. So you do that by, by repealing the 72 Act. And then secondly it's about how do we get all of those laws which apply in the UK solely through the 1972 Act which once we repeal it they will no longer apply onto our own statute book so we still have them and then beyond that over time we start to work out what we want to keep and what we want to change so when we first started this podcast i think i said in jest it's a big copy and paste exercise now of getting european law onto the statute book for uk law is that approximately right or is it i think it's a decent approximation that's that's essentially it it's about how do you get everything over the challenge is you can't just cut and paste um, because of course all of those regulations set in the uh, uh, within the EU are key will refer to a number of agencies mm-hmm. who will be overseeing those laws, uh, quangos, arms length bodies. None of those things will exist 
in UK right. jurisdiction after we leave. So you can't just bring it all over. It'll need tweaks, mm-hmm. and it's going to need a lot of tweaks. So I think we're bringing over 17,000 laws uh, will need to come over. Um, and one of the big things that's causing Parliament concern is the government is requesting extensive use of what are known as Henry VIII powers. Uh, so essentially the ability for ministers by fiat without the consultation of parliament to amend primary legislation. Right. Uh, now these things happen quite a lot, the concept of ministerial orders, but parliament passes a law which normally prescribes specifically, very specifically, what power is handed to a minister. And usually, fact, the most common use is it's for bringing laws into operation. So parliament says, this is the bill, we agree to it, we signal to it, and then one of those clauses will say, the minister is free to appoint by order the date on which this law becomes valid. Essentially, so it's there, and then at some point in the next six, 12 months, the minister goes, it's now in place from tomorrow, and the regime starts. But what this bill does is essentially say, ministers can amend not only any primary legislation that this bill brings over, but actually the bill itself. Um, So even though Parliament may choose to do certain things with it, actually ministers still have the right to be able to amend what Parliament's already done. Um, And lots of people are saying that it just goes too far. So presumably the problem with this then is if it didn't go down this route, we'd be inundated with votes upon votes upon votes. And that's the challenge, and that's government's reasoning for why it wants these extensive uses, saying actually we don't have time to bring all of this back before the House, we've got to get on, we're, we're tied to this uh, two-year process which we started when we took an Article 50, so we need power to be able to crack on with it. Uh, and essentially Parliament, I think, you know, the, the general message is Parliament understands the problem, but it thinks government is asking for much, much too broad powers uh, in what it can do without talking to Parliament. Now, when I say give me an idea of the size of this bill, you have, you told me it's, what, 14, sorry, did you say 14,000? Uh, no, the, the, the bill itself is going to have to incorporate about 17,000 17, yeah. EU laws uh, back into UK statute. And the actual physical size of it is about 800 pages, and so far we've already had quite a number of, of amendments. It's, well, it's 800 pages of amendments, yeah, the bill itself isn't that large, but yes, 850 pages 18. of amendments, 850 pages... 471 amendments. Yeah, I'm reading Alex's notes here, so I'll that, hand you yeah. over to him. That, those, those are the last numbers which I found, anyway, yeah. yeah. So there's a, a lot to be discussed. That is a staggering yeah, amount of amendments. It's pretty, yeah. uh, pretty huge. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with you know, parliamentary process, like myself, <laughs> is, that, is that an unusual amount of, of amendments to have on a bill? Yes. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, I mean, there's only, what, 600 odd MPs. Who is making the these the, the, these amendments will the majority of them come out of say uh, Keir Starmer's shadow department will this be individual MPs who is doing this it's from all over the house and all parties yeah everyone everyone wants to say uh, on the, on changing aspects of this bill and in relation to amendments does every one of them need to be considered sort of so the way the House tends to handle this stuff is the Speaker and the and the clerks of the House will try and group amendments where they've got some aspect of commonality. Okay. Uh, so some so of course you're free as an MP to table amendments uh, to any bill as they come. So actually some some people's amendments will end up being basically identical to somebody else's. So they'll be collapsed. Others will just be broadly similar. So what you tend to do uh, is they will group amendments together. Yeah. Uh, and you try and get a vote across a set of them, so across a concept which kind of unites them. 
so how many votes are we going to have to go through to get this thing through? Uh, I think they said they were expecting probably a couple of, a couple of dozen divisions, maybe, mm-hmm. um, across the... So we have eight days of debate. We're in the middle of day two at the moment. They're not going to run consecutively, so this will go on for a few weeks yet. Is, are there going to be some next week, or do we know? There are some next week, certainly. We only get the, the house's business is usually only announced on a Thursday for the following week, uh, but we know certainly it's going to spread into next week and likely beyond. So in what days do we think that the votes will start to happen? Votes will probably happen on, on each day, depending on what goes. So we had one vote last night, uh, which the government which the, the government won. Uh, I can't remember what it was for now, but it was a, a relatively esoteric bit. Um, but it is, I mean, the variety of amendments. So you know, one of the ones yesterday, which I know has been debated, but the big hot topic one is this concept of exit date being enshrined, which we'll pick up later. Um, but it's around should should Parliament should there be a member which says if we don't like the negotiations as they're going, Parliament gets to mandate to to government that it has to go and withdraw Article 50. There's no way on earth government's going to accept that. It will fight things like that to the to the nth degree, all the way down to really minor points about citizens' rights and what should be expected. Right. So this is a bit of an odd question. How much time do MPs have to consider? before making a decision on how they're going to vote? Or is the decision practically made up for them? Well, the the parties will almost certainly decide to whip their MPs uh, on on some of those, so there will be a forced party line. Of course, MPs are free to free to ignore their party line if they wish. Uh, I guess we'll see we'll see some of that. You know, there's already been talk uh, in a lot of the media today about the Tory rebels um, uh, fighting back against uh, against the government position. Labour, of course, we know we talked about this. Frankly, basically all the parties except SNP and Lib Dem are split. Mm-hmm. Uh, over what should happen and all this, so there'll be there'll be plenty of different decisions within the parties themselves. Uh, the question really is, is: is can anyone actually overthrow the government? Because for now, the rebels are mostly saying they'll abstain oh, right? rather than actually vote against. Now, some will vote against, um, but of course, the government's majority is wafer thin. But there are only at the moment, you know, fifteen twenty. Tory rebels. If half of those abstain, that's not enough to uh, that's not enough to turn the uh, turn the government's decision to a loss. Essentially. So, are they going to yeah. abstain from votes on individual amendments? Or are they yes. going to just yeah? That's it. On some of those amendments, they'll abstain rather than vote with the government. Now, mm. is there any danger at all of this not passing? I, th- I think you were saying before that there's, there's, there's no danger of it not passing. But I, I'm not sure how much danger there is of the government losing on, on particular big amendments that it's hoping to win. I think it's possible to lose on some, um, and you know the pressure that's being put on government this early in the debate is almost, I suspect, trying to get government to withdraw some of the amendments it's tabled itself. Mm. Um, because what government doesn't like is the public press of actually losing a vote, a losing a vote at all, b particularly losing a vote against one of its own amendments. So what you tend to do is try and put pressure on, send a message to government that says, look, you're going to lose the vote when it comes in the hope that government will actually withdraw its amendment so it doesn't have to lose face in that. So it still loses face, but it doesn't lose it through a, uh, through a vote in the House. Uh, I can't see it failing, though, because, and again, we were talking earlier, I mentioned Ken Clark's speech last night. He was the, you know, the only Tory who voted against the motion, uh, voted against the bill to, t- to trigger Article 50. He said, you know, the bill will go through because... They agree in principle that the concept of bringing the EU a key onto the UK statute book is a necessary part of leaving. Mm. So the bill will pass. The question is, in what form? Because if we think this is bad, we've got, what, 471 amendments, 850 pages. This is the Commons. When it gets to the Lords, 
the Lords will tear this to shreds. Oh, really? Um, just from a constitutional point of view. The, the whole Henry VIII powers, uh, I think, that, that will get bogged in the Lords for a long time. And the, the, the difference is, whilst the Commons... Government has control over how many days to allocate for debates in the yeah. Commons. It's chosen to allocate eight um, days to this, which will normally run for about eight hours, each one. Um, the Government has no control over how long the Lords takes. Oh, really? uh, and the Lords, I mean, the Commons is, deba- is, is we're in committee stage for the bill now. Um, the, the Commons unusually has chosen to do a committee of the whole House. So rather than it going to a specialist bill committee, they're debating it on the floor of the chamber. The Lords does that routinely, uh, and it will it will certainly do that. But I think I think we will see even more amendments uh, from the Lords and some incredible scrutiny. I mean, that, that for me will be the really interesting part, just because the technical knowledge of the Lords. Uh, is very very good. It's it's actually where the most interesting debates in, well, in bills happen. Yeah, I mean, I don't know anything about the Lords whatsoever. Um, in fact, to the point that I really wouldn't care if it was abolished tomorrow. <laughs> um, but it sounds like you're almost in favour of it, or you're quite impressed by by, by, by what they do. At, um, I am, and I have the privilege to have, to have worked with them on uh, on the localism, what is now the localism act, but the localism bill then, uh, when we were scrutinising some of the original devolution uh, enabling legislation back in 2011, and worked with them on getting some amendments through. Now the House of Lords is good just because of the level of scrutiny uh, it will give, because it's not time limited, number mm. one, because it's, whilst it is partisan in the sense that there are, of course there are Tory peers, Labour peers and crossbench peers and all the rest of it, it's less partisan than the House is. Mm. It will subject, it will go through the bill literally line by line uh, and clause by clause, and we will hear, um, I'm, I'm utterly confident, we will hear some incredibly good contributions, particularly from the law lords, uh, over the constitutional issues of the Henry VIII powers. So it'll, it'll be an interesting one to see. Okay, well, before we move away from this bill then, there's two, uh, two more in- interesting bits to visit. First of all is the date of us leaving, that apparently is going to be in this bill, and also uh, David Davis's quotes on a meaningful vote. So, Alex, you can lead off with the, with the dates. The, well, this is the first uh, kind of amendment which hit the news in, the, in, in a big way, which was an attempt by the government to put into the bill the exact time and date on which we would leave. Um, which I think was going to go in as 11 o'clock our time, which is midnight Brussels time, okay. on yep. March 29th, 2019. Um, and I, I kind of don't know where to begin with this one, because I think from whatever angle you come at it, it doesn't make a great deal of sense to me. I mean, we, we know that it is already a matter of law that we exit the EU at that time on that date anyway, um, as things stand. And we know that the default position is that if... If not everything is agreed by that time, then then we leave without a deal. Um, but now this is an amendment which has been put forward to the by the government to enshrine that that time and date into the bill itself. Um, and for me, all this does is it it basically gives a hell of a lot more weight to the no deal argument as a negotiating tactic. But from what I can see, it also removes a lot of the possibility for damage mitigation at that point if if it comes to it. So if we get to that point and we don't have a deal, um, obviously now the options are still open for us to revoke Article 50, um, obviously that's an extreme option, uh, extend the, negotiate, uh, the, the negotiating period um, you know, for another year or two potentially, or even just to extend it for a short amount of time and go into you know, a crisis round of talks or something like that mm. um, to mitigate the damage of falling out without a deal. 
The only thing that I can see that this amendment would do is to limit those options once we get there. And so I don't really get the point of it. Um, I, I, I'm struggling to come up with a, a reason for it, to be honest. No, you're right. I think it's, it's basically political, because the way the bill's drafted as it's gone to the House now, it talks about exit today. Mm-hmm. The concept of exit day is enshrined as a, as a term in the schedules of the bill, and it says exit day will be defined by, you know, can be, we talked about the 78th powers, it'll be defined by ministerial order um, once everything's known. So, as Alex said, it's a matter, it's a, the default position now is we leave at, at 11pm on the 29th of March, 2019, and the whole point, I guess, in the drafting of the bill as it stands now is actually that date is not put into the bill because things may change. Yeah. The period may be extended, Article 50 may be revoked, we may be on the cusp of getting a deal and actually we know it actually needs to be the 15th of April, not the 29th of March. Mm-hmm. And actually you just leave it for Minister to essentially ink that in later. That's not quite it, but that's yeah. essentially what happens. This bit can only really be for political reasons. What political reasons? Well, the political reasons essentially by tabling the amendment. Uh, which is what government's done. It's tabled an amendment to its own bill, which says that exit day will be fixed in the bill as 11pm, etc., etc. What you now do, of course, is what I guess they're trying to do is if a division comes on this amendment, what that means is if you think it's a daft idea, and it is a daft idea, um, then you have to vote down a government amendment. You put some pressure on your own Tory backbenchers that if you think this is really daft, you're going to have to vote against your own party and vote against your own government. And that enables the, the government and the whips to put great pressure on that you're a Ramona, you just want to don't, you're not prepared to commit to the will of the people, you're not believing hard enough, um, everything will be fine, go along with it. You know, it's, and it's the only possible reason, because it, as Alex said, it's just a daft thing to do. We're hemmed in. The UK is hemmed in in these negotiations. You know, we've we maintained all the way from the beginning. And podcast one, we've talked about this. You know, the UK is not in control of these negotiations. It couldn't be, even if it actually wanted to be, and you know was engaging in some of the ways we might like to see. It's always going to have the lower hand. So why make your worst hand even worse? It just because you've got the challenge now that if things, let's imagine things go badly. Uh, or things are going well, but the time is short. So we finally think we get a ratification, the concept of a deal, rather, with the EU away in late February, early March. That's now got to go for ratification around around all the member parliaments. What you now need to do, if this resolution passes, is it passes, is you now need to table an amendment to primary legislation, and you have to go through the full House procedure again. Mm. Just to get this date shifted. So, and it's just like, why bother? Well, let me make what I consider would be the Brexiteer point regarding this. And regardless of if, if, if it's right or wrong, I imagine the point of it is it's so we don't drag our feet in the negotiations and we don't have this prolonged period of negotiating past that date. I think their point would be, let's get it sorted now, rather than, you know, it's a bit difficult, kick it into long grass, we'll, um, we'll, we'll sort it later with an extension, of, of, but extension I don't, of the negotiations. But I don't buy it, because the reason the reason the date that they want to inscribe is 11pm, 29th of March 2019, is because that is when we leave. Mm. So actually, the hard thing is not changing the date in our EU withdrawal bill, it's getting all 28 member states of the EU to agree to that date to be different, if you need it to be different. So, 
actually it's you're just putting another step in you're just, just making you're exposing yourself to more of the UK political process than you need to it, as far as I can tell it, it doesn't actually change anything it just no. makes getting the best out of this more difficult than it would be otherwise yeah you're, it, you're just putting an extra barrier essentially but because the point is our membership of the European Union and its termination is not determined now by anything the UK government can do Oh, but it is, of course. I mean, we could determine to literally walk out with no deal. We could literally walk off, walk off the proverbial cliff. Oh yes, but if you if you if you commit today to saying there is no deal, we are members until the twenty ninth of March, twenty nineteen. Yeah, then we go. If you commit to trying to get a deal, but you've not got what in one in place at that point, you still leave. Well, let's look through the other end of the telescope and say, what does the EU want? I would imagine the best scenario for the EU is for the UK to stay with much diminished power. And I think by, dra- by dragging their feet, there's a lot more chance of the UK doing that, whether it be through an EFTA scenario, which we all like, or whether it be through you know, revoking or, or Article 50. And if they don't make sufficient progress through, uh, through the talks, which they're not, I believe that option becomes a lot more apparent. I think what they're doing here is basically saying, you know, we are, we are going to go, we've got to get on with it. But isn't it, isn't it just another one of these bluffs, but everyone knows that it's a bluff? Because they know that if it comes to it, that, you know, they're saying the same thing that you were saying before, you know, no deal's not going to happen, because, you know, neither side's stupid enough to let that happen. Yeah, I completely agree. In which case, what's the point in doing this? Because we'll get to that date and we'll have to adjust because the legislation again anyway to change I the date. I think the process of this not happening, the process of getting the adults in the room, has to be with guns to their heads. Otherwise, it, it just won't happen. If, if if this goes along the Euro, the European Union lines, and it's not a bad thing, it will end up in the biggest fudge of of all time, as probably the European Union is. I think the idea behind this is just to give it a little bit more clarity, which sounds perverse, uh, given what you guys have already said. No, I, I, yeah, it, it just seems like a waste of time to me. Yeah, I'm afraid, <laughs> I don't quite buy your level of cynicism, I'm afraid, John. <laughs> I understand where, you, where you're coming from, but I, do, I, don't, I, I didn't get any sense the EU was genuinely in that position. It's, it's not moving as fast as we'd like it to, but we're not moving as fast as we'd like us to either. Yep. Um, but your, your gun-to-the-head comment brings us nicely onto the, onto the next issue of the uh, meaningful vote. Yes. Because that was exactly... Uh, I can't remember the MP. One of the Labour MPs said that the the house is uh, the government's putting a, a gun to the head of this house, mm-hmm. essentially around the meaningful vote. Um, so I'll, I'll backtrack on, backtrack on that slightly and explain this. So this was another amendment which hit the headlines. Another amendment shall uh, tabled by the government um, for the withdrawal bill um, around the the parliamentary vote on the final deal, mm-hmm. which is something we've all been talking about for ages. Actually, this isn't just for clarity. This oh, isn't yeah. an amendment to this bill. This is the announcement that there will be. Oh, yes, sorry, a separate withdrawal right. deal bill. Yes, yeah, so we've been we've been speaking for ages, or you know, MPs and have been speaking for ages about the idea that we need a parliamentary vote on the final deal. Uh, this was yeah, Christian's right. This was an, the announcement that there's going to be a withdrawal agreement bill. I mm-hmm. think is what it's called. Yeah. Uh, which is basically the final deal, um, which they can then go to a vote. Uh, and so when this was announced, uh, initially on Twitter, lots of people were going, oh, this is a big win for Remainers. This is because we're going to be able to vote on the final deal. Yes. Um, it turns out that really this was kind of a bit of a preemptive strike from the government is how I would put this, because I, I suspect that many of the 471 amendments are going to be around this idea of securing, securing a meaningful vote. And what I mean by a meaningful vote is basically the 
so that if Parliament doesn't like the final deal and they want to vote against it, it, it means that we revert to the status quo or that Article 50 is extended. Basically, they have the ability to vote against the final deal without causing us to exit, to crash out in chaos, basically. Yeah. That's the only way in which a vote can be, can be meaningful. Um, and so there's going to be lots of amendments shelved which would try to put that in place. Um, I think you said before that it's definitely something we expect the Lords to try and do, yep. is to ensure that... If, and and there, are, there are amendments on the Commons yeah, yeah. on this. So, so, yeah, if, so well. if the final deal is voted down, we don't crash out. Instead, what happens is that our, our Article 50, uh, we ask for the, the period to be extended by default. Mm-hmm. So that becomes the default option rather than crashing out without a deal. So the government uh, made this announcement and someone stood up and asked, I can't remember again the name of the MP, uh, asked David Davis directly... Does this mean that if Parliament votes down uh, the final deal that we will crash out on no deal? And David Davis said yes. And there were loads of gasps in the <laughs> chamber. Even though, even though this is something that which we've, we've known about and we've been speaking about for ages, it, again, it doesn't, it doesn't particularly change anything. But I think the key point here was that we always knew that no deal was the default option, but we always knew that there were uh, possibilities for us to change that so that you know extending the, the period was the default or something else. This but, seems to me like an attempt by the government to shut those escape routes off. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I mean, not, I'm not making excuses for the government here, but it does sound like all these things are sort of linked in one way, which is the government almost wants the role of parliament to be limited so severely that they can just get on with it within uh, within their own departments. It's, yeah, I, th- I, I, think, I think there is an aspect of that, but I think this also goes back to you know, some of the comments that some of the, you know, we, we talk often about some of our sort of favourite commentators who are, who are doing some really good job in analysing all of this. Um, and one of them you know, said, the problem is the, the UK government in all of this appears to be obsessed with negotiating with the, EU par- with the UK Parliament mm-hmm. and with the UK media and with the UK public. Yeah. Um, missing the point that actually it's the EU that it needs to be negotiating with. It, it's, it's, it's spending so much time managing its PR over this Mm, yeah. Because actually, because none of the, all this stuff we talked about, the the enshrining of the of the exit date, do we bring forward a withdrawal deal bill? None of this changes what will actually happen. Absolutely none of it. You know, you, yes. You, as you know, it's you know, David Allen Green is the great kind of independent, clear thinking lawyer in all of this. He's come and said, you know, the default situation is we leave, and. The, UK, the only tool the UK government has, the, the only thing that unilaterally the UK can do is withdraw Article 50 to stop that happening. Yeah. Any other outcome, so you've got withdrawal of Article 50, theoretically it appears we can do that unilaterally in the UK, and the EU would accept it, or we leave with no deal. Everything else is predicated on 27 member states and a European parliament. Everything, not, we have no control over this. So all this stuff is tinkering around the edges, but doesn't change the fundamental. But if you want the exit date to be different, or you want a deal, and whatever kind of deal that is, or you want the, so the, 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 the exit date extending in any way, you need 27 member states in a parliament to agree that. Yeah. The, the government doesn't have control over this anymore. We could... We could. We could ask that now, though, couldn't we? We could, absolutely. Um, and I think that's what some of these amendments are now trying to get at. I mean, um, if, if we wanted to change the default option, not so it's revoke Article 50, but so it's extend it for another year, we could go and ask them now to agree that we can write that into our legislation yep. so that if we don't have a deal on that date, we'll get another year. But of course, this, is, this would be the Brexiteer argument. We don't, 
they, they don't want it to roll over and roll over and roll over because effectively no, and I understand be, that and I think yeah. yeah and actually to be fair I don't think the UK government wants that and I don't oh. think I, I'm, I'm pretty certain the EU really doesn't want that because it doesn't want this dragging on for forever and a day which I think is why they they quite like as the UK government does as they do is actually you need a you need a, you need more time in the standstill position, yeah. Um, which you know we're trying to negotiate. You know, Theresa May, for for political reasons, I understand, wants to paint this as being we're outside the EU and it's a transitionary period, or it's whatever phrase she uses to mm-hmm. to talk about a transitionary period. Essentially, actually, the really sensible way of doing this is you just change the Article 50. Now, is you either you either revoke and reissue, or you go to the EU now and say, actually, we want to leave the EU, not in 2019, but in 2022. Now, I understand why politically, for Theresa May, that's an impossible ask. But essentially, that's the that's kind of what you want to try and get to. That's what she is trying to get to. So we technically leave, but we haven't actually left in all practical terms. So she can tick the box of. I've left in March 2019, like I said I would. But practically all of those systems remain in place as if you're still in, so you have the time uh, to negotiate what it is you need to negotiate. So it's, yeah, it, it, this is politics. It is nothing more than politics in many ways. I'm trying to make a point on this, this uh, whole parliamentary vote thing. Um, because another thing which I realised, and some, I, think, I think it was Ian Duncan Smith asked the question, um, was the idea of amending the final deal. So once we've got the final deal... Mm-hmm. It will go to a parliamentary vote, but at that point, the only options possible are to vote for it or against it. We can't change the deal at that point. That's right. You can't shelve amendments to that bill because that well, would then have to open up new negotiations, and the ratification process with the other twenty-seven would have gone out the window. Yeah. So we can't. We can't uh, do we need ratification from the twenty-seven? I of, of the understanding that no longer is the case. It, it's easy portrayed. It, it will depend on specifically what's in it, what 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 changes within things. So don't forget, our relationship with the European Union is, is fundamental. Well, it is a treaty. There is no fundamental about it. It is a treaty. You can only change a treaty by a treaty. Uh, so whatever the deal is will be a new treaty between the EU27 and the UK. Um, some aspects of governance within the EU are reserved to the European Union, mm-hmm. some aspects are reserved to member states some go below and are reserved to, to regional parliaments in, in, in those countries where they have them depending on the components of the bill you will need one or more of those organisations to sign that off um, so, so there's a number of different hurdles, so if you want to extend Article 50 you only need you need a, you need a majority no you need a unanimity of the 27, the, so the European Council, mm-hmm. um, to approve the deal in principle at the EU, between the UK and the EU level, you will need UK government and a qualified majority vote of the European Council to approve that. Then it off it goes for ratification. But there is a final thing: is the European Parliament itself has a veto. So a majority vote against in the European Parliament would simply stop that treaty coming in. And then for any issues which are delegated to member states, the member states' parliaments will need to ratify as well. And that's when you have the meeting of all 27. That's, well, that's in their own parliaments. Yes, yeah. but they've got, to all, they've got to all agree. Yeah, yeah. which is why we're leaving this, why, why the EU has said we need six months just from the point of where the UK government and the EU council agree the text of the new treaty. But that then has to shuttle off round all the member states uh, for agreement. So has all, has all that 
all that needs to happen before this withdrawal agreement bill can be put forward to our house. No, because we can, we, can, we can get on with our side anyway, because each parliament will be ratifying it at a different speed as it yeah. all goes through. So theoretically, we can get on with it. There's no, hmm. there, there's no reason not to. Um, well, let's move on from politics to talk about business, because it does feel like the business is starting to focus its mind a little bit more on the impact of Brexit. We had the airlines speaking a few weeks ago, and now we've got the, the car companies chiming in. What do we know? Uh, this was, was it a Dexu select committee? It's one of the, Dexu or Trade, or, or trade. one of them, yeah. Uh, um, where there were uh, car companies giving evidence basically about the worst case scenario or what plans they're making or contingency plans they might be making. In fact, it's Treasury Committee, sorry, just for, for the record, to get ourselves ah, get right, ourselves right the Treasury Committee. Yep. Um, um, and there are a couple of juicy points came out of it. Uh, one which came from Honda... Uh, in particular, I, I know someone mentioned this on Twitter actually that we've, we've spoken about this before. Yeah. Um, basically, the way that modern just-in-time production works, and that people don't probably don't quite grasp how just-in-time things are, uh, <laughs> and, and you know, and just how susceptible to damage that, that these processes might be. Um, so, to give us a, a, a perfect image of that, Honda said that they. I, I might need to. Get, yeah, get so, this exactly right. I've yeah, got the so, tweet. So, of course, Honda have got manufacturing uh, facilities here in the UK. So, every day they import 2 million components yeah. on 350 trucks. Uh, that's their daily shipping. Uh, and they maintain at the factory one hour of stock. So, they've got, so, you've got a rolling 24 hour production line, uh, but only one hour of stock is maintained. So that, sort of, that gives you sense. And actually, we've heard this before when we spoke to Nissan. Nissan gave evidence at one of the committees a little while ago. I think they said they maintained about 90 minutes uh, of stock. So, but, of course, you're saving vast amounts of money on warehousing, on storing, on shipping. Stuff just arrives when you need it to. And increasingly, this is the way industry works. You know, there's huge efficiencies. You see, if you look at the, you know, the big building sites, uh, construction sites, particularly those in the heart of cities where access is difficult, New parts, new concrete beams, new steels, they arrive at the point where the truck go, the truck arrives and they go into the site. They don't go into a storage facility, they don't get put at the side of the road, they're installed. You know, they, they arrive to the hour. I mean, I mean this um, is the reason that I'm, I'm so surprised that neither of you believe in just... Um, just-in-time negotiating tactics. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> well, except I've no, I've no evidence that just-in-time negotiating tactics works. That's the problem. I do have evidence uh, that business can do this. Now, Honda made another point that if it, if it were to be the worst-case scenario and we revert to WTO terms, it would take them 18 months to uh, change their customs procedures in, in, order, in order to comply with, w, with whatever WTO uh, implications would be. And that... During that time, they would be losing £850,000 an hour. So, so, so that's it. So it's for every 15 minutes that, a, that a, essentially a stock arrival is late, Yeah. every 15-minute delay adds £850,000 an hour to production. Oh, that's right, yeah. yeah. So, I mean... so if your truck gets stopped for 15 minutes at the customs border because there is a border rather than there not being one, and let's be honest, nobody thinks our... our Completely understaffed border staff are going to scan the truck in 15 minutes. That's 850 grand an hour cost. Uh, you can put that into terms of 350 million a week for the NHS. It, 850k an hour gets the 350 million in 41 hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's staggering, isn't it? I mean, yeah. It makes me think. Not this doesn't actually make me think of the EU and us and, and exiting. It makes me think of what happens if if there's a crash on the motorway. 
or if you get pulled over for a speeding ticket. Yeah, that's the most but, expensive speeding ticket I've ever heard. Exactly, and that's why so much focus gets gets put and managed on this stuff. So when there is delays on motorway, you know, when when police are back, you know, it's one in it's in our campaign for business of 2015. You know, it's actually a call for the DFT to work with the police to clear motorway incidents faster. Yeah, because actually this stuff costs money. Delays cost money. Um, this is a big issue. You know, talk to the rail freight companies about shipping containers up. You know, the, all this stuff. You know, for them, it's not a case of oh, the train's running half an hour late. You know, never mind, it'll arrive half an hour late. Half one point six million. Half, <laughs> half an hour late, the, de- the delivering body just won't accept it. Is that you know, right? The contract will be: you are this train, mm. this truck arrives on our site at this window, and if you are not here for it, we will send the goods back. I'd love to do a podcast um, just on, just on, just on. On logistics, actually. Well, see, I mean, it's, uh, it's a fascinating sector, and it, you know, it's another—it's it's just a great visible and tangible example of the ways in which the ways in which the way business is done and the way logistics has developed has changed to suit to suit the market. You know, the analogy we've given before is that this is not about—you know—we don't build something and it pops out the factory on the other end and we export it. Yeah. Is the factory floor crosses national bo- national borders? Um, uh, and what you go back, to, you know, what what a no deal scenario does is it puts a brick wall through the middle of that factory floor. I think I think we can we can take from that that if it was a no deal scenario that Nissan would just uh, sorry Honda would probably just su- suspend production. And, yeah, and Aston Martin and, and, actually at the yeah, same yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. the same said that we would expect it to just suspend production. We wouldn't be able to cope. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so, do we think in the next few months this is going to be a reoccurring theme of businesses talking to talking to government? And furthermore, do you think this is where we're really going to see a bit of movement in the UK position? Not when it's politicking between left and right, Labour and Conservative and internal battles, but when CEOs start knocking on doors? Yeah, I think so. There, there was a meeting at Downing Street earlier this week with, I think it was the CBI and the IOD from the UK, and then a number of business representative organisations across European member states. Um, and what was interesting in that is the, re- the reports that came on the back of that were where the Prime Minister is, was asking some of the the, the, um, the business representatives from outside the UK for some of their help in lobbying their national governments uh, in helping to move things along. And the, the business viewpoint from the other side was very much, this is your problem. Yeah. This is, this is, it, it is not you know, my job as an industry representative for EU state X to go and talk to my government about getting the negotiations. That's, that's not what I... That's very interesting, actually, because I've read the same thing about the, the, you know, the much vaunted gym car companies, which are you know, apparently going to come and save us at some point, mm-hmm. which is then you know, they don't value this that highly. Yes, they do value it, but they value all the other things in, in, in the EU far, far, far and, and that's exactly it. And this is one of those points we've been sort of trying to hammer across for a very long time, particularly to those who say, oh, you know, the EU needs us more than them because we buy Brie and BMWs. Um, well, of course, the point is actually we do buy BMWs that are mostly made in the UK, but the majority of BMWs made in the UK are sent back to Europe. Yeah. It's actually one of our very big exporting sectors um, is, is making cars for the European market. So none of these balances stack up. So we see, as I said, those people saying, actually, A, get on with it, but also the thing that came out, you know, they said, you know, we're not getting involved in the national governments, so that's your job. The second one is we value the integrity of the single market more than the EU remaining a member. Yeah. You know, they're very, very clear about that. We've talked before this. You know, go and talk, look at all the election coverage of the other European elections that have gone on in the EU since Brexit. Brexit does not factor on any of those. Talk to the um, to the, the other member states. It's not a big news item. The protection of the EU as it stands for them is of infinitely greater value. They'd rather the UK stayed 
think only France has a majority which would rather us leave. Um, they'd rather we stayed, but given a choice between compromising the single market to keep the UK in and protecting what they already have, they will go for the protection. And of course the thing is, it's much easier. We can talk about trade flows and, you know, Rhys Mogg and Red would talk about this all the time, saying there's trade deficits, and that's correct. But of course it's much easier for 27 member states to absorb the 128th of their supply chain that's currently here than it is for the UK to try and repatriate 27 28ths of its supply well, that, chain I mean, to the I, UK. I do appreciate what you're saying, there, but that's not quite right, is it? Because we wouldn't be 128th, we're far, we're far larger than that. Yeah, we're a larger share, yeah. absolutely, yeah. But you, but you have the, the you have that scale. But, yeah, impact, I, I get it. It. Yeah, it's it's far. It's going to be. Let's be honest. It's going to be far easier, for example, for German car manufacturing to absorb the bits of the supply chain that are here and soak it up than it is for us to do the opposite. Yeah, that, that's that's fundamentally where you are. Really. Um, um, I think I'd like to move on to um, one of my favourite people at the moment, which is the chair. Is, I think it's the chairman of Goldman Sachs. Who is Jetta? Is it Goldman Sachs? Or is it, or is it I think it is Goldman Sachs. I'm pretty, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure it is. I like his style, actually. I mean, if I had this much um, this much influence, I'm pretty sure that I would go to most European cities, uh, speak to their local politicians, and just see what they see what they have see what they have have to offer. Uh, the latest one, Bin Paris. Yeah, he's well. He's been jetting around. I think we talked about him last week, actually. Yeah, he was, was, uh, where was he last week? Frankfurt. He was Frankfurt last Frankfurt. week, and he's of course they're building a new UK office. And he said, you know, we're worried that we may not, you know, we may not fill it all um, anymore. And he went to Frankfurt and sort of made I, like, I a tweet like saying, I, I rather like it, which is a good job because I'm going to be spending a lot more time here in the future. Hashtag Brexit. Um, uh, so yeah, so Paris is the next, the, the next. Tories had, but uh, yeah, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure his cover's going to be blown when um, it's uh, hashtag Ibiza, hashtag Vegas. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I, I don't think any, uh, I don't think anyone is getting quite as well wined and dined as him, and he's already a very well wined and dined man. So uh, I, I look forward to this. It's um, it's good to see where where he's going next. Yeah, so it's I mean it's, it's this thing about the city, particularly in city firms, and of course the huge challenges because everyone's talking about WTO rules will be fine. As well, of course it, you know it might be fine for some manufacturing industries. They'll have to pay the tariffs. It's a bit extra paperwork, but of course actually from a financial and legal services point of view, it, WTO rules does nothing. Yeah, uh, and uh, pretty much the world as we know it stops um, within the EU. Yes, of course you can still trade across borders, but. The, the, you know, a lot of the single market legislation enables all of that. Uh, so firms are looking for looking for potential. Uh, well, certainly they need to. We know they need to spin up subsidiaries uh, in the EU if they've not already got them, which need to be of sufficient scale to pass mm. the EU tests. For no. the, you are really present here, and you've not just stuck a brass plate on a on a letterbox. Um, now, um, there is a serious point to me um, talking about Goldman Sachs and. There, and they're more than dying because do you think it's un, it, it, it's underplayed how fun a city is for relocation of of financial professionals it's hugely important and it's one of the reasons London's actually done very well mm. I think you know when the, there was you know lots of talks saying actually you don't need to, in the early days and I still think a lot of this is true that you don't particularly need to worry too much um, about vast way that the city relocating to Paris and Frankfurt um, actually Paris is a very very nice city but actually the tax the tax rates are very very high the bureaucracy is unbearable um, there you know you lose some there how many of our you know how many of your global elite are desperate to go and spend most of their time in Frankfurt exactly you know it's Frankfurt's not you know sorry people if you're listening from Frankfurt you know it's a nice enough place but it isn't well, London but didn't we have headlines this morning and I didn't read past the headlines that 
David Davis announced something about a, uh, a free movement for bankers. That's it. Yeah, it goes beyond. Yeah, it, yeah. it goes beyond that a bit. So he's looking at a, a, a free, a much more kind of lax regime on professional transfers, essentially. So if you're moving temporarily to go and work yeah. in a different office, yeah, there was, um, that there'll be a more liberal regime for that. There was also news, wasn't there, from uh, for visas for people in tech, and also in, an investment of twenty four million into tech. That's right. That was announced well. earlier today, and we'll we'll get more of that at the budget, I think, next week. Um, but it is, yes, it's about it's about trying to assuage the free movement stuff and I think the challenge here is you need a component that's liberal enough that genuinely allows that because actually a lot of our professional services and actually talk to you know we spoke with a few European uh, manufacturing companies you know who have sites across across the EU the movement of people between sites is, is kind of integral to the business plan essentially so you ship people across borders uh, easily so we need a visa regime which which supports that the question is how open can you make it because mm. once you start drawing lines saying well it's only for companies who sit in these sit codes yes. then it all starts to get very very challenging so you know and of course you know politically you don't want this being portrayed as the government's happy to happy to create a special freedom of movement uh, campaign for the richest people in the UK but the rest of I you was, can, uh, uh, sit, uh, can uh, sit at airports filling in landing well, cards there's a, there's, a wider, <laughs> there's a wider point around that isn't there that, that it seems like the focus is on you know financial services, tech, digital, those yeah. kind of industries, um, and even like your hardest of hard Brexiteers who are going for the WTO option, basically seem willing to let manufacturing and agriculture and fishing take massive hits. Yeah. And and you know, so I foresee a, a, a scenario where all the kind of metropolitan liberalish rem- remain exactly remain want. remain voting areas and industries get protected and all and all the leave industries and areas I get absolutely to, uh, but I guess yeah. that was yeah, that's yeah. kind of what they signed up for you know well, <laughs> some people I'm, wanted to leave some people wanted to stay but people stay stay yeah, 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 I'm not quite sure that's what they signed up for <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I think that would just make people who voted leave even more angry <laughs> it, I mean politically it really it would really uh, highlight the um, like say the Elite classes. Yeah, so yeah that's it. It isn't particularly wise. You, you don't politically want to get to a point where you know we, we have it now. You know we land at Manchester Airport and there's there's the EU citizens queue and there's the non-EU national queue. Yeah, you <laughs> don't want queue. the here's the bankers queue where everyone just walks through without any problem and then the rest of us are filling in landing cards and taking three hours to get through border. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not a good look. <laughs> well, thankfully we don't have segments on this program, but if we did have a segment, it would be what has Alex Davis been tweeting about. So, Alex, what have you been tweet? What have you been tweeting about? Oh, what are you putting on the spot there? Have you got anything in mind? Yes, uh, the, <laughs> the Department of Trade and, and Industry uh, tweets. Your favourite? Oh, right. So this was uh, it was it was Dexy, wasn't it? No, it was Department. It was DIT, de- Department yeah, of International Trade. It's definitely trade. not Department of, Department of Trade and Industry. Uh, that in, that went trade? some time ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's international trade. International trade. Yeah. DIT. No, DIT. Yeah. This was ju- this was just. Uh, it was yesterday on Twitter. Um, Department for International Trade retweeted a Daily Mail news story which was reporting <laughs> upon a report from lobby group Economists for Free Trade who uh, we've spoken about before um, headed up by Patrick Minford the very hard Brexit WTO option yep. is fine group um, yep. and immediately I was just like what what is happening here this is quite scary to see a government department tweet, tweeting this kind of stuff uh, I retweeted it. It was deleted with a, in a, within about ten minutes, um, because it turns it's out hot. it is. It, and I've got a screenshot of it. Believe it or not. Believe it or not. Really? Um, yeah, it turns out it's in quite serious breach of uh, civil service code for them to do that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, if anyone 
if anyone's listening and, and they want advice on Twitter, my advice is don't follow anyone that you wouldn't retweet because quite often when you're scrolling down, you do occasionally hit the retweet or the mm. or the like button, which is often a disaster. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I don't. I wonder th- how this happened. I don't oh. think it was one of them, but since they they they, they, commented, they, they well. talked about the content of the article, did, did they tweet it. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So, that's yeah, got to be an intern. Yeah, it's yeah, it's not, it's not a good look. Um, and of course, actually, people hung up saying, you know, some of the people complained saying, well, a, you know, economists are free trade. A, you will all have your views on them. We've made ours perfectly clear. We think they're bonkers. Um, uh, but also, it's a case of well, you know, you're the you're a government department, so Treasury has got its forecast about what's going to happen, and the ABR's got its forecast about what's going to happen. But you're apparently you prefer somebody else's. That's it's a very odd look. Mm. A very odd thing to do. But yes, they've, uh, as you said, I suspect so some intern what... is being beaten with, a, with <laughs> sticks in a basement, I suspect, after that. Yeah. I would love to know how that came about and the reaction once they found out that it was actually out there. Because someone must, must have done it and someone must have picked up on it pretty quick. Well, all, all Twitter did, yeah. I did. Yes. And lots of other trade right. people said, hang your head in shame for doing this kind of thing. And it was, it was gone within 10 minutes. So. Excellent. Well, I look forward to uh, finding out what you highlight for next week's programme. <laughs> um, right, anything else to add? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, big, I mean, big highlights coming up. I guess we actually in the, within the Dexy pray it's all it's all going to be the withdrawal bill uh, over the next week or so. We've got the budget, of course, next Wednesday. Yes. Um, Philip Hammond is under unbelievable amounts of pressure um, to get this right. So a couple of senior ministers quoted in the press this morning saying they expect it to be quote a car crash unquote um, that you know that Hammond is not hasn't got the the light political touch to understand the implications of some of the decisions he's made. Don't forget in his first budget uh, earlier this year he uh, he raised national insurance contributions on the self-employed and backtracked on that within a week. Um, there are talks now about him lowering the VAT threshold uh, for businesses, which really? is currently about eighty-five thousand. Yeah. Maybe a bit higher now. Uh, possibly bringing it down to close to the EU average of ten or twenty thousand, which would bring millions of oh, companies in the scope of VAT who currently aren't. Um, now there are actually lots of very good empirical tax efficiency reasons for why that's actually good policy um, uh, in terms of distortionary effects all the rest of it as always there's what what we know works from a theoretical point of view and how you get through a political system and also actually for our own members in this situation you know these things are big implications in terms of admin burden in terms of challenges and particularly actually at this point in the economic cycle when when lots of people are worried about where things may go to force Two million small businesses to increase their prices by twenty percent overnight is is not a good thing to be. Do you know? Do anyone care to make any predictions as to what they might see in the in the budget? Because I have one. I know. I mean, there's, the, the talk has been around. Um, Sajid Javid, community secretary, has been trying to get Hammond to to put a fifty billion pound injection into house building. There's no sign that's that's going to be. Uh, but that's going to happen. I think Philip Hammond is wants to stay within the, the fiscal the horrible phrase fiscal envelopes that yep. have already been set. Rumoured reduction in stamp duty. Is Possible there? reduction yeah. in stamp duty. So trying to target the housing market. Don't forget you know, Theresa May's conference speech. If you if you heard it amongst the coughs, um, that she's desperate to do something about the housing market and make it her personal aim to to see that through. Uh, now stamp duty is a bad tax. You know, goes from those tax theory 
points of view, it's a, it's, it's a shocking way to raise money. Uh, it creates distortions way beyond the housing market. It causes productivity problems. It causes job mobility problems. Uh, it causes people not to want to downsize. It's, it's got all sorts of implications. So we'd like to see it go, but it raises all the money. It's 20 or billion a year, if okay, stamp duty. Well, if I was to make a prediction of how these things are going to be funded, I would not be surprised if we see some sort of attack on pension tax relief. That wouldn't surprise that be there's been talk of this for a very yes. long time by by lots of parties. So if you if you are currently earning more than the upper earnings limit, forty seven thousand at the moment, maybe a bit less, uh, you can currently get if you're paying forty percent tax essentially you're currently claiming forty percent relief. Tax back. Yeah. Uh, so on the way back in expect expect in the next few years to see that come to 20p and not only yeah. that there's a very sneaky move uh, under the Labour government and they reclassified tax free cash as pen- pension commencement lump sum so if you're due to draw out your lump sum I suspect at some point you might see some tax on that that's why they change it from tax free cash to pension commencement yeah, and absolutely. all these things are open and they're in play so uh, it'd also be a relatively quick way to close, close a deficit you could actually close a deficit completely if you uh, eliminated uh, high rate tax on pensions, well, you, 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 tax for that, you, you theoretically could, but yeah, you do some dynamic modelling because what is behaviour will change <coughs> massively. So mm. you know the amounts paid into pensions, how people draw it down, all of that would change very, very quickly as well. So it's ill challenging tax. Oh, I think it's, it's a, a terrible idea. I think it's the worst idea that you that, you, know, that you could possibly have. But, yeah, that, but I think it's th- the th- and there are, there are arguments for it depending on how you look at it. There's all it's a it's a complex area. It's a, like anything, incentives matter, and you know if you get if you draw the line slightly in the wrong place, very odd things can happen that you don't expect. Yeah. Right. Well, um, anything happening in the in the chamber of commerce? I think it's uh, we're knee deep in all sorts of research at the minute. Aren't we? We're looking data. at labour market changes. We are data crunching in galore for a couple of our big campaigns, and of course, I said getting ready for the budget next week. Excellent. Right. Where can we find you on Twitter? And let's wrap this up. I'm at gmcc underscore alex, and I'm at gmcc underscore christian. And if for whatever reason you'd want to find me, that would be at jbeardmore. So until next week, we'll see you then. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.